0: The London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine podcast. Thanks for downloading the July 2015 podcast. This month, lights. How turning off street lighting in the UK to save energy might not
1: lead to increased accidents and crime. But our results um, have found no evidence... That reduced nighttime street lighting is associated with an increase in casualties or crime.
0: Sites. We'll hear whether we're winning the battle against trachoma, the leading cause of blindness.
2: There's a lot of trachoma there. About one in four children would have evidence of disease and infection when we looked.
0: And worms how a reanalysis of a flagship study of data by school's researchers has found that deworming children may not improve school
3: attendance. To our surprise, there were quite a lot of issues that we found in the original analysis that resulted in some of their major findings, as they'd originally described them, being quite different.
0: Many local authorities of England and Wales have reduced street lighting at night to save money and reduce carbon emissions. Up until now, there was no evidence as to whether these reductions had a negative impact on public health, such as increased crime or traffic collisions. In a new study, researchers from the school quantified the effect of four street lighting adaptation strategies in England and Wales and conclude that there is no evidence for any increase. We asked Dr Phil Edwards, one of the study authors, to illuminate us further. Phil, we're standing under a lamppost on Keppel Street, where the school is in central London. One lamppost of around seven and a half million streetlights in the UK, is that right?
1: I believe there are something like seven million streetlights, costing something like 300 million pounds in electricity to keep the lights on at night.
0: So it's in our interest to consider what might happen if we started switching them off and this is what your project is looking at, is that right?
1: That's right. In England and Wales, um, local authorities have been reducing the provision of nighttime street lighting to save money and also with concerns about greenhouse gas emissions. So they're reducing light at night and that's led to a lot of concerns from the public.
0: And is this actually turning the lights off or dimming them or both? or what, what are people
1: we doing? Well, local authorities have, got, have tried different uh, methods. Some are turning the lights out at midnight and switching them on again at 6 in the morning. That's what they call part-night lighting. Other, uh, local, other local authorities have got the ability to dim the lighting, so they dim the lights from 100% power to, say, 75% or 50% of the power. Um, some local authorities are trying out new energy-efficient lighting, so LEDs and white lights. They're replacing the old orange lights, the high-pressure sodium lighting, to new energy-efficient LEDs and white lights. Um, And some local authorities, very few of them, decided to switch the lights out permanently in some streets. Right, so
0: what is the lanterns project? Tell me about this.
1: Well, the Lanterns acronym stands for the Local Authority Collaborators' National Evaluation of Reduced Nighttime Street Lighting. That's how we got Lanterns as an acronym, but it's a Local Authority Collaborators project, Um, and we invited all the local authorities of England and Wales to let us have their data on the streets where lights have been uh, changed. We've got the grid reference of every lamppost lighting column from 62 local authorities. So that's about 25,000 kilometres of streets. We've got the grid references of all the street lights. Uh, And we've got the month and year that the lights were uh, switched off at night or dimmed. All of the data sets we've combined in a geographical information system, a GIS system. So we've linked the streetlights to roads And we've linked to those roads casualties that have occurred at night. So somebody's been injured uh, as a pedestrian or a cyclist. And we've also got data on crime like burglary, robbery, um, theft of vehicles and violence. Those data sets have been combined and we're we're able to do um, what's called a, a controlled interrupted time series analysis where we want, we've been able to look at the effect of the intervention, turning lights out at night, on the uh, rates of casualties and crime in those streets compared to others.
0: And are you seeing what we might expect to see? I mean, presumably people are afraid that if you turn the lights off, everything's going to start going wrong. Have you seen anything to back that up?
1: Well, you're absolutely right in terms of people are afraid of... People are afraid of the lights going out, uh, and part of our study has sh- shown that people are um, less likely to go out in the streets at night with the lights where the lights are turned out. But our results um, have found no evidence that reduced nighttime street lighting is associated with an increase in casualties or crime.
0: So the results of your study. I mean, what does this mean for the future? Are we, are we going to be suddenly plunged into darkness all
1: over the country? Or? I think the um, local authorities are facing more austerity measures. They're being told to make cuts. Um, clearly, some local authorities have saved millions of pounds already with these measures. Some, in some parts of the country, the uh, the, the the residents are are really upset about what what's being done. So. Um, I think it's just we've been able to provide the evidence that the local authorities can use in making their decisions about where and when they might reduce lighting at night. Has
0: anyone, you know, any other country in the world conducted this kind of experiment or is doing anything about street lighting
1: at the moment? We, we are the first. So the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, working with the Department of Security and Crime Science at UCL, we've been kind of d- done the first large-scale study looking at the effects of reduced lighting at night on casualties and crime.
0: And have you been able to speak to all these local authorities about the results? Are they are they what people expected to see? We
1: we haven't yet. We did have a meeting at the end of 2014 to say that the results were, were coming out and what What would they want in terms of how the results are presented? And we're aware they really want to have local data. They want to know, well, what about in in Cornwall? What about in Kent? What about in the West Midlands? How, how How will it affect us here? And our study has really just been able to show the overall national average, which is for no increase in casualties or crime. That was Dr.
0: Phil Edwards, and you can hear a longer version of that interview via the school's website at lshtm.ac.uk. The London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine podcast. Parasitic worm infections affect millions of children in developing countries, causing debilitating illness and holding back their physical development. However, in a reanalysis of data from a flagship study, researchers from the school found that deworming children may not, in fact, improve school attendance. We spoke to study authors Dr. Alexander Aiken and Callum Davy, who told us more about the original 2004 study in Kenya and their reanalysis of the data.
3: So there's this very famous paper about the effects of deworming children on a wide range of outcomes, but principally health-related school attendance and exam performance. So this paper was published in 2004 in the journal Econometrica, which is an economics journal, and it's been very influential because amongst the different things they described, it suggested that deworming school children meant that they had better school attendance and this study was done in kenya so a lot of african countries and other developing countries have amongst other bits of evidence have used this to say that deworming programs would be a good thing to do because they would get more children going to school which obviously we'd all like to see we came to this paper through program run by an organization called 3ie that's the international Initiative for Impact Evaluation, who's uh, largely economists, and they they were getting a whole range of influential papers in development studies reanalyzed to see if the same conclusions were reached when a sort of independent set of researchers looked at this.
4: What is this kind of data, and what did you find when you looked at it again? Because obviously the first study seemed quite positive.
3: So the the first thing we did was really to take the original authors' um, approaches and reproduce them, really just taking their same raw data and using the same calculation steps that they'd done to see what results were reached. To our surprise, there were quite a lot of issues that we found in the original analysis that were represented, I guess, some mistakes, some kind of oversights by the original authors a lot a lot of them were sort of very trivial things but a few of them were quite substantial and resulted in some of their kind of major findings as they'd originally described them being quite different so that we felt was kind of quite an important finding as a as a first stage
4: and you would expect if you if you did the same sums basically with the same numbers you should end up with the same numbers this is quite concerning that this paper is so influential
3: yeah i I mean i think this is kind of um illustrating the value of this kind of reanalysis um the 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 funders call it a replication but essentially it's reanalyzing so yeah it kind of illustrates that influential studies can benefit or, or at least the scientific community can benefit from from taking a second look at kind of bits of data that have been um, been used for a lot of work, um, so that that was our kind of our first stage, and we we called that a pure replication, basically doing their analysis again.
4: So, Callum, that's the first stage. What was the second stage? What were you looking at?
5: In the second phase, was what was at the time termed a scientific and statistical replication, and what that amounted to was essentially taking the same data and applying newly devised analysis to the data
4: kind of crunching it in different ways
5: exactly to try and uh, ask the same answer the same questions or similar questions
4: when you look at this data again with your kind of new number crunching and break it down what conclusions do you find do they support the conclusions of the original paper
5: so when we looked at the data again relatively cautiously on the basis of both the design but also i should say the limited access we had to some of the documentation supporting the conduct of the trial. Now, we appreciate that the trial was actually uh, done quite a number of years ago. It ended in, the actual doing of the trial ended in 1999. uh, And many of those documents will be missing now or, um, or or, or just somehow not available. Our analysis took a few different looks at the data. And what we found was that while there was Some evidence that there was effects in each of the years, these were small, and the statistical evidence to uh, support these effects being not due to chance was limited.
4: You've looked at the data and uh, you've done the original analysis again, you've looked at the data and analysed it in a new way. What else did you do to look at this data?
3: So the the final part of our reanalysis was what we called a a scientific reanalysis, or a replication, rather, and this is really trying to look at the the causal chain of whether giving children deworming drugs actually has this eventual knock-on effect of um, making them go to school more. Having worms in your gut doesn't in itself stop you from going to school, so people who have done research in this field have always said, well, there must be some kind of intermediate step somehow relating to the child's health that kind of makes children with worm infections less less healthy, so they're less likely to go to school. That that's always been the the um, the sort of the, the, un, the hypothesis. And in the original paper, what they'd said was, or that what they'd found was that there was an effect on the hemoglobin level in in children who had deworming treatment had less anemia, and they also seemed to have slightly better nutrition. So it was sort of offered that sort of haemoglobin and nutritional state was somehow this intermediate step. But what we found in reanalyzing was that actually the evidence for both of those things, that the haemoglobin was actually a, a mistake, that there was no evidence of, a, of an effect on the haemoglobin level, and the evidence for an effect on nutrition was, was really very, very weak, and we, we we disregarded it. So looking at it from this kind of causal point of view of deworming children um does it lead to changes in your health does that lead to then improvements in school attendance well we said well there was no effect on health so any any anything from the deworming drugs well it couldn't possibly result in improvements in school attendance cuz there was no evidence of the intermediate step and we we kind of described some alternative mechanisms that could could be Resulting this effect, one of which could be the fact that you're doing the study in the first place, observing children very closely, could be the thing that's altering their behaviour. So, so,
4: they don't want to get in trouble, so they're going to go to school. Well, exactly.
3: If they know that someone's going to turn up and check their attendance a few times a month, m- maybe that was it. So, so that's a kind of a third way. This kind of causal pathway reanalysis was a, a third way that we kind of thought about the study afresh. <laughs>
0: Trachoma is the leading infectious cause of blindness, affecting the poorest and most marginalized in society, with communities and cultures in Africa affected and at risk. International initiatives have had significant success in controlling trachoma in recent years, and the World Health Assembly has called for its elimination as a public health problem by 2020. In a public engagement talk at the British Museum, Dr Anna Last from the school talked about the history of trachoma in Africa, its cultural links, and whether we're winning the battle against this devastating disease.
2: Trachoma is a neglected tropical disease. It's a communicable disease. It's a disease that's caused by a bacterium called Chlamydia trachomatis, which is present in the conjunctiva of the eye. It's an infectious disease that's passed from person to person, usually in children under the age of 10 years and with repeated infections in communities where this is endemic, the eyelid can go on to get scarred and cause interning of the eyelashes which then rub against the globe of the eye and cause scarring and abrasions over the cornea which eventually causes blindness and it's not everybody that gets the infection initially that becomes blind. But in endemic areas where there's a large amount of infection being transmitted without intervention, there are significant proportions of people who are at risk of blindness from this disease. At the moment, 325 million people live in trachoma endemic areas and are at risk of this. And it is the most prominent cause of blindness related to infection with about 2 million people being blind from trachoma and a similar number being uh, visually impaired. And in terms of the global effort to control and eliminate trachoma, can you talk a little bit about WHO goals and any alliances? So, many years ago, trachoma was so neglected that it didn't make it onto the neglected tropical diseases list. So eventually it did make it onto the list and in 1997 the WHO in alliance with a number of NGOs that had been working in trachoma and groups that have been undertaking research in trachoma such as us here at the London School got together to prioritise elimination of this disease as a public health problem. So to eliminate it to the point where we felt it wasn't being transmitted anymore and that people weren't getting the downstream consequences that would lead to blindness. And that's focused on a strategy that we call SAFE, which is surgery for the trachiasis, which is the interned eyelashes, antibiotics for the active infection, which we'd give out by community mass drug distribution to the whole communities, and then other strategies to promote facial hygiene and improve environmental conditions mostly related to sanitation to reduce the transmission and reduce these downstream consequences. So this strategy was adopted. It was supported by the groups that comprise the Alliance and also by Pfizer, one of the pharmaceutical companies who agreed to supply all of the azithromycin, which is the oral antibiotic that we use to treat active infection in these communities. And has WHO set any specific goals for trachoma? So, the Global Alliance for Elimination of Trachoma as a Blinding Disease is set to eliminate it as a blinding disease by 2020.
1: So, looking at Africa,
2: can you discuss the burden there? Um, Well, the greatest burden of trachoma that exists in the world now is is in Africa. The 14 countries with the highest burden of disease are in sub-Saharan Africa and it's where the majority of the the problem continues to exist. Trachoma's been embedded in African communities for many, many years. I mean, the trachoma has existed back to ancient Egyptian times, and before that, even in Europe. It's obviously not existing in Europe anymore. So it's been in Africa probably since the beginning. Commedia trachomatis is a very happy pathogen in the human host then your work specifically, at least recently, has been in this Bijagos Islands, the Archipelago, off of Guinea-Bissau. Can you talk a little bit about what you were doing there? So Guinea-Bissau is one of the countries that has not yet eliminated trachoma. Um, it's a small country in West Africa. It's just north of Guinea-Conakry, which is the, where the current Ebola outbreak started. It's got a population of about one and a half million. It's a very poor nation and has very low scoring human development indices and the group of islands, the Bajagos Islands off the coast of Guinea-Bissau are particularly remote in terms of the Mm -hmm. geographic remoteness and also the sort of cultural isolation of populations there because they're quite different culturally and ethnically to the mainland populations and there are additional logistic constraints such that health care is more limited on the islands than it is on the mainland so access to healthcare and ability to provide interventions is, was very limited when we first started working there There was a lot of trachoma there about one in four children would have evidence of disease and infection when we looked there were a lot of people who had developed scarring of their eyelids, and a significant proportion of people who had trichiasis, which would then put them at risk of blindness. So it was a major public health problem there. And the island setup provided a very unique environment to undertake studies looking at the distribution of disease and some of the factors relating to the infection itself and also gave us the opportunity to intervene and provide treatment and then evaluate how how that was working. And in theory, because you have an island population, it should be easier to eliminate it because you don't have mass movements where, that we've seen elsewhere that reintroduce infection. So it's a unique environment to study trachoma in, and we think we will be able to eliminate it from, from the islands within the WHO Time frame
0: As always, you can hear extended versions of all the interviews on this month's podcast via our website at lshtm.ac.uk. Thanks for listening.